0: Good morning. Good morning, my name is Ryan Labrie, and this morning our scripture reader reading is from First Peter. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading from First Peter, chapter three, verses eight through twenty-two from the New American Standard Bible. First Peter three eight. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lip from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ear attends to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong." For Christ also died for sins once and for all, for the just and for the unjust, so that he might bring up, bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Correspondingly to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and power had been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here with you today. I'm Julie Steele, and I'm one of the pastors here at Evergreen, and it's been really fun getting into this uh, scripture this week. Thank you, Ryan, for reading that. He said to me, a good thing you didn't send that to me before you asked me, because it was a pretty long passage. But I assured him there were no weird names to pronounce and things like that, so that makes it a little easier. We are going to be covering a lot of ground this morning. I'm going to try to uh, race us through, and there are a few points that I'm not going to really go into very uh, deeply because of that. So hopefully you will not be frustrated by that, and we can just get moving here in 1 Peter. We are continuing our sermon series uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and today the theme of our uh, sermon is going to be Integrity. Yes, it worked. Integrity in our identity. Integrity in our identity. Well, I thought it would be helpful if we looked at the two words, integrity and identity, to figure out what is it we're talking about. So first, integrity. The quality of being honest, having strong moral principles. But I want you to go down to number two, because that's the piece that I want to keep as our backdrop as we talk this morning. A state of being whole and undivided, internal consistency, or lack of corruption. So what about identity? Well, that's pretty simple. The fact of being whom or what a person or thing is. So, integrity in our identity means we are undivided, we are consistent in who we are. Pretty simple. In our text today, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is laying out a case for us to live out our identity in Christ as Christians with integrity or with consistency. So let's first look at our identity. I thought I would share with you some of the characteristics that make up the identity of the Steele family. So, since Uh, football is next to godliness, we know that we are all Seahawks fans through and through. Now, one caveat is that when I got married to Barry, I already had season tickets as a single woman. That was my dowry. And he was a San Francisco 49ers fan, and so, yeah, so it was my challenge. That was the first thing to change, or I'll alter him, that needed to happen. And it happened, so we're all Seahawks fans. Second, we love meat. We are big meat eaters. Oops, wrong one. There we go. Uh, Now, I know there's probably some vegans and vegetarians out there, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the Steele family consistently builds their meals around meat, preferably rare, juicy steak. So we're all meat eaters. The other thing that we are is we really love family traditions, Christmas, uh, other holidays. We make it a point to do family things together. Any kind of graduation or any kind of event in someone's life within our family, we make sure we're there. So we have some family traditions around Christmas that have had to change a little bit just because of the proximity of where my sons are now. Definitely some Christmas movies we need to uh, make sure that we watch together and some other things, and I'm sure you do too. We also, the Steele family, love to get dressed up. We love to get dressed up for an event, and I know that a lot of people it's just a big hassle, you don't want to deal with that, but that's not us. And uh, so, this was at one of Barry's birthdays in the past few years. And my sons have really got into tying their knots with these different knots, like there's something called the Windsor, and there's something called the Half Windsor, and I don't know, there's all these things, but they're super into, they all look the same to me, but I pretend that I think they're different. So we like to, we like to dress up. And last, we all love Seinfeld. That is our favorite all-time TV show and there's almost no conversation that goes by where we are not inserting some line from a Seinfeld episode. We can sit and watch those things all day and continue to laugh and gives us great joy. So those are just some of the things that give us our identity. Well, Paul, uh, Peter gives us some characteristics of our identity as God's people. It says here... To sum up, and when he says to sum up, he's saying the previous seven verses that Pastor Peter talked to us about last week talked about how husbands and wives relate to each other. Now he's going into how you relate to each other as a Christian body, as a church body. He says we are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead giving a blessing. We were called for this very purpose. So the list here that Peter gives us is telling us who we are in Christ. In chapter 2, previous chapter, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called out of darkness into his light. Peter saying, this is who you are as God's people, and don't forget it. Now, these uh, characteristics here that we're looking at are specifically aimed, again, at the Christian community. And the reason for that is, if we cannot practice these together as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we go out there and we deal with the world and with people who these are not how they identify themselves, and we get persecuted, we are going to fail. We won't have integrity in our identity because it won't be second nature to us. So first we work on it with other believers so that we're ready to be able to continue this as we go out into the world. We're going to go through these uh, line by line, but something that came to my mind was, that when my kids were little, we wanted to teach them how to have good manners, have good table manners, be able to go out into the world to someone else's home or a restaurant and know how to behave and just be second nature to them. And so one of the things we did that we just kind of fell into it was on Friday nights, we had special Friday night dinner. And what that meant was I made something out of the ordinary We had a tablecloth and nice napkins on the table. We used the good dishes, and we lit candles. That just really was a great thing. Now, looking back, I think it was all about the fire. They were excited to light candles and who was going to put the candles out, but it was still some kind of incentive. And... They looked forward to that, and how that worked was when we did go out, I would get comments from people on how well-behaved our kids were at the table and how they knew how to not go, ew, I don't like that, (laughs) instead saying, I don't care for that. But it really made a difference. So what really made me feel good was a couple months ago, we went down to meet my son's girlfriend, and she's originally from Texas. And one of the comments she made to me was how she was so impressed with Adam's good manners and how he was always opening the door for her and waiting for her to sit before he sat. And I thought, I finally did something right. <laughs> so, like I said, we're going to look at these individually, and we're going to start with harmonious. Well, this word comes from a Greek compound adjective, homo homos meaning common, and friend meaning thinking. This word is also used in other Greek writings uh, that are outside of the Bible. And the way it's used is talking about a husband and a wife or uh, two opponents that take an oath. And I got to thinking, isn't that the same thing? Yes. (laughs) So we take an oath. So this word is common thinking or like-minded. It means that we don't agree on everything, certainly not. And I would guess in this room right here, we don't agree on a lot of things. And we don't even agree on what this service should look like. However, we are called to agree on the essentials so that we have one purpose in our work for the Lord, and we are not divided in that. Next Sunday at our annual meeting, we will have a great opportunity to practice being harmonious, having different opinions and different ideas, but being respectful and honoring each other. Sympathetic. Well, this word simply means to be willing to feel what another person feels. Now, Paul put it this way. He said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I tend to take on other people's burdens. I sometimes have to turn the TV off. I can't listen to the news because I'm overwhelmed with what some people are dealing with, the devastating circumstances. And I had a friend come to me a few months ago and ask for prayer, and she was sharing with me a devastating situation in her own life. And as she was talking to me, my heart was sinking, and I could hardly hold it together. And after I got done praying for her, she looked at me square in the eye, and she said, now you know you have to leave this behind you now. She knew I could not continue to carry her burden. I can continue to pray for her, but I can't let it bring me down. And it haunted me for weeks. So being sympathetic is a great thing, but we need to know how to turn that off, too, in a healthy way. Brotherly or sisterly? Well, Peter calls us to have the same affection for each other as we do for our biological family. I don't know about you, but I have some really annoying, bizarre people in my family, and they think the same thing about me. Well, some of us are pretty weird, right? Let's face it. I'm sure that what Peter wants us to do here is we love each other no matter what. We have the same love and connection and loyalty and responsibility for those in our spiritual family as our biological family. Kind-hearted. This word means compassionate or to have a tender heart for someone. There are some people that are difficult to be kind-hearted to, and I know I many times say unkind things to people. But you see, because this is part of our Christian identity, We don't have a choice in the matter whether we feel like it or not. We are to be kind-hearted, humble, humble in spirit. You know, so much pettiness and complaining in the church can be attributed to our pride, our not being humble. But Peter, who had a tremendous problem with pride, if you remember, calls us to be humble toward each other. The idea here is to place other people above yourself. When we insist on having our own way or that our opinion is the right way, we are full of pride. There's no room for humbleness in there. I heard someone say once that Jesus commanded us to love God and love others He didn't have to tell us to love ourselves. You see, Jesus is the ultimate example of humbleness. He, being God, being perfect, being holy and sinless, he came to serve and not be served. And I was wondering, as Peter was writing this letter to those churches, was he remembering when Jesus washed his, Peter's feet? Grudge-free or don't pay back evil for evil. Anybody here have a problem holding a grudge? I know you do. We all do. Well, I'm claiming the title of being the queen of holding grudges. Uh, That's something that I unfortunately uh, came by in my family structure. And when we hold a grudge against someone who's hurt us, We tend to justify revenge, right? We need to pay somebody back for what they're doing, and we're just holding this grudge. I had a certain ex-boyfriend that, with the help of a friend of mine, pulled a few pranks after a breakup. And one of those pranks included a fully dissected frog and his locker, and I'll leave it at that. With Barry, when we got married, my grudge-holding skills seemed to flourish. Do any of you have cast-iron pans? Cast-iron pans. So you know that when you are to clean a cast-iron pan, you are to just wipe it out and not use any soap on it, right? Well, Barry had a lovely set of cast-iron pans when we got married, And he instructed me, don't put soap in this pan. You'll ruin the finish on it. So one of my favorite, and I've already told him this, repay evil for evil things, was when he did one of the many things he would do to make me mad, I would go into the kitchen and grab a pan and put as much soap in that pan as I could and swish those suds around and watch that finish just go off. Fortunately... I haven't done that in years, and I've gotten past that. But, you know, we do justify some pretty crazy things when we feel someone has wronged us. And how many of us in this room here may even be holding a grudge against somebody else in this room? You know, it's really serious business to be holding a grudge. It is in direct opposition to our identity in Christ. So last, we have full of blessing. Instead of holding a grudge and paying back evil for evil, we are told that we are to bless. Now, our sinful nature returns evil for evil. That's our default button. The spirit nature returns insult with a blessing. You and I are called to be blessings to our Enemies, those who are persecuting us. When we suffer, we are to bless. When we're hurting, we bless. Jesus, again, gave us the example when he was on the cross, completely innocent, hanging there at criminal's death, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did not pay back evil for evil, but he blessed instead. Now, I want to make something clear here. I am not talking about staying in an abusive relationship. When someone is hurting you, you blessing them back is not going to bless anyone. You need to get out of an unsafe relationship and seek help. That is the most loving thing you can do for someone who is hurting you. Well, to strengthen Peter's case, he's quoting Psalm 34. He says, The one who desires life to love and see good days, which would probably be all of us, right? Must keep his tongue from deceit and his lips from speaking deceit, not returning evil for evil. So he's explaining to us here why we should turn from evil. We want to have a good life. We want to be blessed. Our tongue is prone to evil, especially when we're under pressure or we're feeling attacked. We complain, we blame, we vacillate. But if we're acting out of our identity, then our tongue can actually become an agent of blessing instead of evil. Notice that the way of the righteous is not passive. It doesn't just happen. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Those are all conscious decisions we have to make, and it's not easy. Now, to live in Peter's day as a Christian was a huge struggle. As Pastor Peter mentioned last week, Nero was the emperor at this time, and he was a horrible, Horrible, evil man. This is his image on the coins that were going around at that point. I don't know how much you know about Nero, but if you look him up, it's a pretty scary thing to think about, him being in charge. And Peter knew a lot about the suffering that was going to come because he knew what Nero was like. And Peter himself was crucified upside down for righteousness. So he knew suffering. The phrase that describes Nero is wine, women, and slaughter. And so being a Christian at that, at that time was a life-or-death business. It wasn't a matter of getting your feelings hurt or not having your rights be heard. It was life or death. Now, verses 13 and 14 Peter challenges us to not fear, to not be afraid of suffering. And in verses 15 and 16 gives us instructions on how we are to answer those who persecute us because we are going to be persecuted. And how do we continue our identity when we're being persecuted? First, he says, focus on Jesus, not your fears. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You see, if Jesus is Lord in your heart, which means he's completely consumed your whole being, then whatever you have to fear becomes very diminished, becomes just a, kind of a, a non-threatening thing. Jesus is greater than any persecution or problem we'll ever face. So what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst suffering we can have? Death? All right. All right. We go to heaven and have our eternal life with our Savior. So we don't have anything to fear. Second, we are to be ready to give an answer. Now, I think a lot of us are really scared to witness to our friends, let alone people who are persecuting us. Peter says, be ready to give an answer. But an answer for what? What's the question? The question is, What is the hope that you have? How do you have that hope? Well, I have a question for you. Do others, especially those who are not Christians, do they see you as a person of hope? Do you respond to adversity and challenge and persecution in a way that would cause somebody to ask the question, how do you have the hope that you have? Or do they see you panicking and reacting in the same way that someone whose identity is not in Christ is acting? You know, I think many times, me, you, we don't look any different than those who are without hope. Hope should be something that people see in us all the time. Thirdly, our reply needs to be with gentleness and reverence. We love to be right, right? When someone asks us the question, how do you have the hope that you have? And we say, well, I'm a Christian and you're not and you're going to hell. That's not very effective. If we tell somebody about our own relationship with Jesus and what that looks like and how that gives us hope, That is much more convincing and opens up the conversation. So, we need to be gentle and respectful. And last, we are to keep a clear conscience. When we're under pressure, we are tempted to justify any action or say any words that we wish we could take back. The ends justify the means. This person did this to me, so I had to do this back to them. I needed to respond that way. Our identity as God's people doesn't give us that option. Our natural response is to retaliate. We must have integrity. We must act out of our identity, even in the face of evil, as Peter was telling these Christians to do. If we don't, We become evil ourselves. We become just like them. I want to share with you, actually I don't want to share with you, but God really put this on my heart. I'm going to share with you how I did this all wrong. I did not have integrity or consistency in my identity in Christ with my mother-in-law. This is Sylvia Steele, and she passed away about 10 years ago. And we had a less than wonderful relationship. I was really excited to get a mother-in-law. Barry was an only child, and Barry's father had passed away, and I thought, this is going to be so great for me to have this relationship with this mother-in-law. She lived in California. And she came up here to meet me. We got engaged, and I just had this this idea of what this was going to be like. And when I first met her, she was very cordial, but kind of a prickly person. And our conversations felt strained, and I just couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. As time went on, I really sensed that there was some kind of power struggle going on, and Barry assured me that she hadn't liked Any of his millions of girlfriends prior, so I tried to keep this in mind. This was just her. She was a really, really critical person. And she used phrases like, Well, they should have done that. I would have done it this way. Always putting other people down. And after a few years, she began openly criticizing me. Not Outright, but those backhanded kinds of things where you go, Whoa, what just happened? Uh, she'd say, Oh, you do it that way, or I would never. So she criticized what I cooked for my family, how I wore my hair. She criticized my homeschooling, thought I was ruining my children, uh, thought I was forcing religion on them. She was not, did not come from a believing home and that I should do what, she, what her parents did, which was raise you to be nothing so that you could decide when you grow up. Well, none of the family believed in God. And there were many things that she did that really hurt me deeply. But one time, this is a really good one, she was showing me some pictures from a birthday party that she'd taken of our family when the kids were little, and I was probably about 30 years old then. then, and she pulled one out in particularly, and she said, she, she said um, don't worry, I didn't show this one to my friends. And I said, well, why is that? And I had a sleeveless dress on. She goes, look at your arms. I went, oh, I thought they were pretty good. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff I got all the time. So at that point, unfortunately, my attitude really changed. I stopped hoping for that relationship. I did not like this woman. We were not going to be friends. She was an unhappy, bitter, insecure woman. And unfortunately, I did not focus on that. I let my identity in Christ slip as I became resentful and holding grudges. I was not kind-hearted. I was not compassionate. I did all the right things as a daughter-in-law. I took care of her, all kinds of things. I mean, I was always, but in my heart, I resented it. And she knew it. I knew it was wrong, but I honestly didn't care anymore. And frankly, this is horrible. I didn't care if she went to heaven. I didn't want to be around her. She just kept hurting me. Well, at one point, she fell and broke her hip. She had lived alone, and she had to go into an assisted living facility. And so we had to sell her house and do all of this stuff. And as I was doing all this stuff for her, she was just angrier and angrier at me. And I remember one day looking at her saying, you know what? I'm all you've got. She had no one else to take care of her. And she just sort of you know, shut down. It was a horrible thing for me to say. When I heard the social worker tell her that she was going to have to live in an assisted living place, I thought, that's your problem. I had no compassion for her. I thought, you know, you've hurt me all these years. I thought she deserved it. It was really horrible, and I am ashamed to tell you that I thought those things. I became her. I had the same bitterness that she did. My identity in Christ was not consistent. Now, I could have decided to turn from my evil thoughts. I could have decided to have a better attitude, seek and pursue peace with her, but I didn't. And when she died and she was laying in the hospital bed unconscious for several days... I remember praying and praying, Lord, have mercy on her. I was so ashamed at the opportunity I let go by for this woman to ask me what was the hope that I had. And so I prayed that he would have mercy on her and he would not hold my sin against her. And I, with all my heart, hope that she is in heaven. I cannot change that. I do not have a clear conscience. And it haunts me all the time. I blew the opportunity to have integrity in my identity. The last three verses here are a little bit confusing. So I'm only going to touch on them and not uh, go into them very deeply. Uh, There we go. So these last few verses have been debated by theologians for centuries, and I did a lot of studying, but I decided instead of spending a lot of time on this that it might actually detract from the message, I'm just going to say this about them. Uh, Verse 22 explains that now Christ having suffered, is Lord of all things and with all in submission to him. Through his suffering, he's been glorified, and so the Christians who are in the midst of trials that Peter was writing to, that they needed to take heart, for Christ has overcome the powers of the world. That's what he's saying here, and that's what we need to hang on to. So, Are we willing to follow Jesus even in the difficult task of suffering for those who persecute us for the sake of their eternal salvation? Are we willing to be all in, having integrity in our identity every day as his followers, living harmoniously, being sympathetic, humble, kind-hearted, not holding a grudge, But instead, giving a blessing for the sake of another one's eternal life. Why? To bring them to God. That's why Christ suffered for us, to bring us back to God. And that is our mission, too. Because you see, that's what it looks like to have integrity in our true identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the identity that we have in you, and we thank you that with your power, we can live this out in a consistent way and have integrity. Father, we ask today that each of us here, wherever we are lacking in our identity, that we would give that to you and count on you to help us from now on to lead a life of integrity so that we honor you, God, and for the sake of those around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.